Welcome to Inclusion Unlocked, where we explore the changing equity, diversity and inclusion landscape, bringing you fresh perspectives, lived experiences, practical tips and next practice. I'm Sasha Scott. I'm the founder and CEO of The Inclusive Group. We're an equity, diversity and inclusion consultancy in the business of behaviour. Alongside our guests, we'll be exploring challenging topics and focusing on action, considering the practical steps each of us can take, whether we're leaders, HR practitioners or colleagues, to unlock inclusion in our workplace. Today, I'm joined by the C-suite diversity leader, lawyer, media commentator and author, the formidable Funke Abimola. Funke shares insights into her early career and how the murder of George Floyd acted as a catalyst for a career change into DEI. We discuss Funke's deep sense of pride around her Nigerian heritage and the highs and lows, but mostly the highs, of working alongside her incredible son Max during the pandemic. We also get a sneak peek of what to expect from her forthcoming book, Climbing Mountains. I've been a really enthusiastic follower of Funke for a number of years. And if you're looking for a dose of inspiration from a leader who's been long advocating and driving progress on DEI, this episode is just for you. Okay, well, hello, and so excited to be here today. Um, Funky, thank you so, so much for joining us on Inclusion Unlocked as our guest. I've been really wanting to talk and more importantly, listen to you for a very long time. So I feel incredibly privileged that you're that you're giving us your time this morning. Thank you so much for having me, Sasha. Thank you. My pleasure. So I'm going to dive straight in. Um, you started your working life as a corporate lawyer. Um, and I know that while there's still a way to go, the legal sector's come a very long way when it comes to both inclusion and culture. And I'd love to um, get a sense of your early career experiences, how that shaped you know, who you are and the work that you do today. Yes, no, thank you for that, Sasha. So, yes, it, it was indeed the challenges I faced entering uh, the solicitor's profession uh, that really spurred me on later on to start uh, focusing on diversity and equity uh, across the profession. I uh, experienced um, very, very blatant and obvious name discrimination uh, on trying to enter uh, the profession. I was told by recruiters that that was what was, was happening. Um, you know, recruitment consultants uh, were telling me that. They were saying that I should think about other practice areas outside of corporate law, that, you know, corporate law was not uh, was too competitive for a black woman you know these are the sorts of things I was being told at the time very upsetting you know I went through a full cycle of uh, feeling a huge sense of despair at various stages as I was sending off CVs and covering uh, letters and I ended up having to uh, do a cold calling campaign I made over 150 phone calls uh, over a period of two weeks uh, to all the partners that were heading up corporate law practices uh, at the top law firms. And I did the same uh, with the in-house side. So it was 50 in-house uh, heads of legal and general counsels. It was 100 uh, heads of corporate practices. And that was what actually got my foot in the door. That way I was able to get my interviews and ultimately you know, was able to qualify. So I was really upset about that. Um, fast forward a few more years, settled into the legal profession. I was about two years qualified, was married, 
uh, decided to have a baby. Not unusual when you're married for that to no. be the case at all, you know. And at uh, the time, and we're going back almost 25 years, the profession just wasn't really willing in any way, shape or form to accommodate any form of career breaks. So, you know, maternity leave tends to be one of the most common. But, you know, anyone who'd been absent mm. for a while wanting to go back in... And returning from a year's maternity leave, it was like I'd returned to a former, you know, foreign land. I mean, it was, you know, I suddenly was very aware that I was the only uh, female solicitor who'd had a child at that point in their career. And everyone else was waiting very strategically to become a partner before. So now my son's, you know, a year from graduating and most of my peers still have children, you know, about to enter secondary school. I mean, that's how I know that there really was mm. this gap and this delay. So again, that was a massive hurdle to, to overcome. I ended up having to leave central London uh, to move to a regional practice as a way of keeping my uh, career going because it was impossible to uh, go back into the central London practice I was working at and to keep my career going that way. And again, the rage, the, the despair, the, you know how unfair all this is. And it was literally, you know, Sasha just complaining about it one day uh, to a group of colleagues at work once I joined uh, a regional practice and still working mm. full time. You know, me not working full time was never I accepted as a corporate lawyer that I'd have to work the five days. It was just to have manageable hours uh, that was the issue. And uh, I started mm. a mentoring group um, because I was just so angry. And that's how... The work then built up slowly over the years, the point where I was then partnering the law society, law firms, and, you know, and it grew and grew and grew to, you know, working with central government and the Ministry of Justice and all sorts of things. Amazing. But it, it started off with a mentoring circle because I was so frustrated with what I was seeing and hearing and experiencing. Gosh, gosh, that's that's an incredible story. And it's all been motivated by, you know, just just hitting barriers and, and, and biases. And that I can hear that anger has just fueled all of those really, really significant steps that you had to take just to be in the room and to be noticed. I cannot imagine how hard it must have been to be picking up the phone cold calling. I mean, I mean and, and to get to get someone who was going to listen as well. Yes, it was tough because this is going back to, well, it was 1999 because I, I was admitted in 2000 and the internet wasn't what it is now. No. So actually getting the phone numbers, you couldn't find out the direct dials, for example, of key decision makers. So I was going through reception to get hold of, of these wow. individuals. Um, and it was it was an interesting two weeks, Sasha. Um, oh. And it was a sheer sense of desperation, though, because, you know, nothing else was working and I, I had to find a way forward. And I ended up meeting up, you know, for coffees with quite a few senior partners, several of whom still remember. In fact, all of them still remember me because how many people were doing this at the time. But yes, it was tough. It was very, very difficult. Incredibly difficult. And and something I notice a lot in listening and talking to people in law firms, because we, we work with a lot of law firms, probably about 45, 46 law firms over the last 20 years, is I always hear about a really significant bias that seems to exist around corporate 
um, and um, being a woman in corporate and certainly being a woman with ch a child in corporate. Whereas other practices have appeared, maybe it's notionally, more inclusive of working in a flexible way. And, and I mean, I think, therefore, that there's such a resistance in corporate because it's so transactional and so client-faced to welcoming any, you know, any type of diversity of way in which one works or, you know, balance. What, 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 what are, what's your thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, corporate is tough just because of the way the work comes in. It tends to be transactional, large corporate deals, etc. And my saving grace, actually, with moving to a regional firm was that the client base was different. So I was acting less for large multinational organizations at that point. And it was more sort of local owner-managed businesses, often of significant size, who themselves had families. You know, it seemed a lot more real, actually. They wanted to have a bit more balance themselves quite often. So I was still enjoying mm. the breadth of the corporate work and helping them to merge and, you know, acquisitions and all the work that I really enjoyed doing. Um, but it was a much kinder client base, frankly. Um, and it's actually very difficult to manage expectations of large uh, multinational client, you know, that the pressures often are, are, are very real. Uh, often they're tax driven. The structures of these deals are very much tax driven. When you know you're going to be able to um, make use of a, a tax loss or some tax form of tax relief, there's often a very hard deadline within which the transaction has to complete. You know, I remember that <laughs> vividly. Um, so there was no, yeah. there was no slippage uh, in that, mm. which meant then you then had to work through the night to, to get the deal through. So depending on which spectrum you're on around the sort of corporate work, there's often no getting around that. Uh, but my point is that quite often that's not the case. There's a much wider corporate mm. client base we can represent as corporate lawyers. And uh, managing client expectation, it wasn't something I, I saw being done terribly well uh, when I was a junior solicitor. You know, I think partners were very afraid of losing clients and, and all of that. And yeah. actually, if you manage expectations better, it was actually a lot harder, a lot easier for everybody, mm. including the clients, mm. frankly. Mm. And that's that's really good practical advice as well to people because I think there are probably a lot of um, a lot of uh, women that are really worried about you know maintaining their practice and um, embracing motherhood. I've heard a lot about um, a lot more recently around freezing eggs and just suspending life and and you know trying to trying to have it all. So. This is an evolution, right? And and throughout your corporate career, you've played very much a, a leading role as we hear around mentoring, but a lot more than that, I think, in advocating for diversity and supporting diverse talent. And in recognition for that work, um, incredibly, absolutely incredible, brilliant achievement. You're awarded an MBE um, in 2017. Congratulations. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Awesome. And I wanted to move it as well in terms of after the murder of George Floyd, you then set up a diversity consultancy. Can can you tell us more about that period and that journey that you've been on since then? Yes. So at the time I was on study leave, uh, actually, and that hadn't been, it just happened to coincide with, with lockdown. I'd planned, planned the study leave well ahead of lockdown, even knowing that any such thing would exist. You know, we didn't know, did we? Mm. Um, 
And so I was in a full-time job, you know, still practicing law, etc. And when George Floyd was murdered, and at the time my son, of course, had been sent home from school, so he was in sick form, you know, there was no school, it was all online. Um, everyone reached out to me because at this stage I was so well known um, for the work, the impact I'd had, you know, very actionable things I was doing, making you know, driving very tangible change, uh, promoting action plans and helping people around what they could tangibly do to drive that change. So I had people reaching out not only from my legal network, but also from Global Pharmaceuticals, uh, because I'd worked uh, within Global Pharma for the best part of the decade at that stage, a very senior leadership levels. I'd worked for the world's largest biotech company, and I was now working for another at global pharma company and I was a senior leader within both organizations so wow. my, I'd done a DEI work diversity related work as a volunteer I'd been you know given that remit as part of my my actual day job uh, with both of those pharma organizations as well so I was doing a lot to drive culture change even within those organizations so I was very well known by this stage so everyone reached out for me desperate for help and specifically it was around mm. race of course in light of what happened uh, with George Floyd Sasha so I remember panicking actually with the deluge I had no 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 concept of me as an entrepreneur I'd never thought of myself as an entrepreneur running my own business it was actually my son who's far more entrepreneurial than I ever will be uh, who said I think this is actually an opportunity you know business opportunity and so on helps me with setting wow. up the consultancy I mean he's a a tech yeah. focus you know he's about to graduate with his computer science degree very entrepreneurial uh, very okay with risk and I mean I don't know how <laughs> he's just very wired very differently to me so he became one of my freelancers uh, he helped me with all the tech side everything of course was being delivered online and we set up this consultancy the model I ran was I wanted to help uh, undergrad students who were from um, socioeconomically deprived backgrounds and they were all struggling with paying rent and you know university studies and so on so I had a team of four in the end all of whom were students including my son and we worked really efficiently and impactfully uh, to deliver programs to really large organizations you know large multinationals signed up uh, with us law firms were clients built up a really really solid uh, six-figure business within a relatively short period of time with that registered etc and it was through that and the visibility of that that we were all approached in different ways by either by clients or those who wanted to become clients for you know full-time jobs and that's how I joined uh, Corn Ferry, where I work currently, to build up the DEI consulting practice across Europe, Middle East and Africa. Um, and it's been a great uh, you know, transition because I have so much more I can offer my clients now. Being a smaller consultancy before, you know, we were developing our own IP and there was a limit to how quickly we could do that and do, mm. do, do delivery and marketing, business development and so on. So that's how I've, I've ended up where I am now as a partner at Corn Ferry. That is so interesting. I mean, what was the experience like working with your son? I mean, he sounds absolutely amazing and go him with the computer science. Brilliant. <laughs> but what was it like? Because I have a son who's probably a little older than yours. He's uh, 23 and I'm not sure how I'd handle working with him. So it wasn't without its challenges, I have to say. I mean, um, we get on brilliantly. We co-host our podcast, actually, the podcast that we run. It, we do it together. Um, and that came out of lockdown as well. 
we're very aware of our differences. Let, let's put it that way, Sasha. And, you know, I'm so detail oriented. I mean, this is one of the things I find hugely frustrating uh, about my, my wonderful son, Max, and he truly is exceptional and vice versa. You know, he's equally frustrating because I'm so detail oriented. I mean, why wouldn't I be? I'm a lawyer. You know, this is the way exactly. the training. Um, but he's very much a visionary. He will see the vision without thinking about the steps that need mm. to be taken to... So you can see how that would complement, both complement and also frustrate uh, mm. each other. And the other thing where we're very, very different on is planning. So his idea... Okay. I mean, he doesn't really have a concept of planning. He's had to embrace that <laughs> as he you know, went to university. And, but there are times where he just sees the vision without really thinking about the plan and deadlines and things like that. Whereas I'm really, I mean, for me, if there's no plan, you know, it's not going to happen, right? <laughs> so Love we it. would have massive rows about all, all our arguments come from those two things. Every mm. argument we mm. have. Of course, now yeah. he's almost 21 and it's, it's very funny now. But certainly, my goodness, there were times when it was no laughing matter at all, Sasha. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I can imagine. And yet what I hear there is just that beauty of two different types of brain two different generations the inter sort of complexity of the mother-son relationship but are actually creating amazing amazing content and really changing things at a seminal time so what a wonderful experience amazing amazing <laughs> love it love it so um i now want to move to another area i mean time is always our enemy here and i I know that you take immense pride in your heritage and I'm a keen follower of you on LinkedIn and I know that that's often used as you know an area of celebrating again your heritage and educating people that follow you on Nigerian culture. Can you share a little bit more about why that's so important to you? Yes, yes. The main reason is that there is so much negativity about Nigerian Nigerians um, and it's it's so unrepresentative of the reality of Nigeria. You know, it's um, it's something I feel really strongly about. I was born in Nigeria. I still speak uh, Yoruba, one of our many, many Nigerian languages, fluently. And I'm very proud of that fact. I go back home regularly. I've been twice this year already. I'm going again in November. Wonderful. Um, and my son, you know, was is British born. So he was born yep. here. But very importantly, his father and I really wanted to expose him to Nigerian culture very early on. So he's been back to, to Lagos with me many, many times and loves all aspects of Nigerian culture. It's so important for identity to, to be very aware and proud of where you're from, you know. And mm -hmm. without that as a foundation, I've seen terrible things happen with people you know because you feel all at sea you don't have an anchor if you can't be proud of where you're from your heritage it really does um hamper all your efforts you know you develop huge chips on your shoulder I mean I've seen it all it, it limits mm. your potential ultimately and I find that that's the thing that saddens me the most is when I see people who don't maximize their potential so 
I will always talk about Nigeria, my Nigerian heritage. Uh, I like the fact that I've got dual citizenship, of course, because that's given me many privileges. I acquired my British passport over 20 years ago. But I'm still very, very proud of my Nigerian heritage. And I will never give up my Nigerian passport either. Uh, you know, that's something that I'm, I'm very keen to, to keep a hold of. So, yes, those are the reasons why, you know, heritage and nationality and, and why it matters, really. And, and our identity is, as you say, absolutely central to how, how we feel about ourselves, um, understanding more about where we, where we come from, the cultures, environments that we, that we live in, and, and the importance to pass that on, particularly um, to people that maybe have a different or skewed view of difference in terms of you know, Nigerian heritage. Absolutely. Identity mm. is critical. Really, really solid foundation needs to be built around that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think in a lot of ways, LinkedIn, you know, when we create a platform and we have followers can be a, a, a useful vehicle, among other social media to you know, be showcasing the positives and education, because I, I think so many biases that we all have as humans just come out of a lack of awareness and are hooking into stereotypes and then the reiteration of those sort of rhetorics. Very, very true. Yes. And a sort of misunderstanding that comes from that as well. You know, and that's why I'm, I'm such a huge fan of things like reverse mentoring, you know, uh, doing that mm. uh, across multiple geographies quite often, people who look nothing like each other, multiple generations. You know, I've seen incredible things happening. I remember I, I paired up a senior partner, partner of a law firm uh, with a trainee solicitor and the trainee was from a socioeconomically uh, deprived background. She was black and female. She'd, you know, uh, gone through the Sutton Trust and, you know, she was from, she yeah. really was incredible how she'd managed to get into a Russell Group University, etc. And the senior partner was white male, third generation of lawyer in his family's grandfather mm -hmm. had been a high court judge, his father was a leading barrister, you know, so the, you can imagine yeah. the misunderstandings that, you know, and they'd made wrongful assumptions about each other and, so over a period of time, you know, that then led to so many important initiatives. I mean, this is a major, major law firm who's now a leading light, in fact, uh, around DEI more broadly, you know, diversity, equity and inclusion across mm. the whole profession. But a lot of it started from this reverse mentoring uh, pairing. So it's incredible what, you know, lack of understanding can lead to so many terrible things. But bridging that gap can lead to wonderful work as well. Yeah, and wonderful work, absolutely, because what I hear there is just this ability to create a connection between two individuals whose paths would not have crossed, and then the ability to get stuff done yes. through storytelling, understanding, humanising relationships. What a great, great example of a very kind of action, actionable way, a tangible way that, that change can be affected in this space. Yes. No. Really important, the power of voice. And actually moving to our to our final final um, area, but again, the power of voice really, but this time um, through your book, Climbing Mountains, I, I understand um, that this is to be published next year. One, how on earth do you find the time to write it? And two, can you share what prompted you to write the book? Any sneak sort of peeks on what we could expect? <laughs> Thank you so much. So yes, it's been an interesting journey finding the time. I'd already 
written it during the various lockdowns because there was just so much more time on our hands that couldn't travel, you know, couldn't really yeah. uh, do a great deal. Um, but I've had to sort of amend and edit and I'm working with an editor. So, you know, almost going back to the drawing board in many ways. Uh, yes, I have a strict writing schedule. It's on weekends. You know, I've got an editor who really is very, very strict on that. And, and we will get it done. But the book really came out of a talk I deliver to student populations, uh, which I've been delivering for over 10 years now called Climbing Mountains. And it's all about my life story and then the five you know, stages that I, I've gone through to get to where I am, you know, the five top tips for success. And at the end of every talk, I'd get students coming up to me saying, oh, thank you so much, miss. You know, this has helped so much. It's so practical. You know, thank you for keeping mm -hmm. it real. You know, it would be wonderful if you had a book or something where you could put this down. Of course, I thought nothing of it. But when you keep hearing this constantly, and I've done talks, you know, to universities in America and universities across the UK, and I was hearing the same thing, you know, as well as secondary school students. And I suddenly realized that actually, if I'm going to write a book, you know, that would be the structure of it. So in terms mm. of what the book covers, the first half is uh, autobiographical. It covers my life and, you know, various stages of my life across various chapters up to the current time. And then the second half of the book is those practical tips. It's the five stages uh, to becoming a resilient leader. And I cover each of the five stages in, in each of the five chapters in the second half uh, of the book. Very exciting forward messages being written uh, as well as we speak. Um, we've done Ooh. the photo shoot for the cover and, you know, all of that. So it's really got to happen now, Thank Sasha. You. you know, I have no excuse. <laughs> uh, I've got someone going to help me with uh, the sort of typesetting because I'm self-publishing. I decided to self-publish right. to maintain independence. So I've got my typesetter ready and waiting to do all the typesetting wow. in December. So we have to finish the manuscript by then. Amazing. Amazing. Well, you will. I have absolutely no doubt of that. And what I also love about this, one, I'm really looking forward to reading it. Two, it is sort of a part of your ongoing legacy. Um, and it's just, I think, something wonderfully rewarding about being able to you know, publish written work that will be around when we're not around. Um, and I think that there's something very, very powerful about that and uh, you're leaving you know a real a real mark and a and, and a signpost for future generations through your ability be, to be such an authentic and incredible role model and I've got one last question for you which is completely off script but you know, I well first of all I'm just really enjoying listening and talking to you and, and I'm just wondering what brings you joy over and above your work um, you're very disciplined. You've got a path. You know where you're going. What are you? What are some of the things you do around the edges that bring you joy? That maybe are less, are more spontaneous. I'm wondering. So I love spending time with my son. You know, we we get on brilliantly. Um, we enjoy each other's company. I love talking to him. He's taught me a lot. You know, I've learned so much 
uh, from him. And we regularly have mother-son dates. Uh, going to the cinema is a big thing. In fact, we're having one next weekend. I, I'm going to be going up to, to Newcastle where he's at university. And uh, we love the Marvel films, you know, superhero. Oh, so we'll yes. always watch that together, any Marvel film, any sci-fi. It's our thing. We'll discuss in tremendous detail afterwards, Sasha, you know, what was good, bad about the film, etc. So that's always great fun. Um, I really enjoy live music. I'm a massive fan of hip hop, uh, 90s yeah. hip hop specifically. And I do talk about that on LinkedIn quite regularly, actually. And it's amazing how Love many it. people from my LinkedIn network are also avid 90s hip hop fans. It always starts yeah. a great conversation uh, going. So this year I've been to four hip hop gigs uh, with my son and, and friends and, and others. Thanks. Uh, we do enjoy Italian opera as well. So going to the other end, uh, of, and it has to be Italian opera specifically. Okay. Um, I don't know yeah. why, but, you know, uh, specifically Verdi and, and Puccini are the two uh, composers of choice. Uh, and I've actually been to Sydney Harbour and seen um, La wow. Boheme with my son. You know, we, we watch that. Uh, we go to the Royal Opera House when we can. You know, so we are huge fans of, of, of opera, Italian opera. Travel is a big, big part of, of what we do as well. I've uh, been to lots of places. Again, uh, traveling with my son because he's just such great company. Um, so, yes, those are sorts of things, you know, socializing with friends, all the usual stuff as well. Uh, all those, That's what I my go to, my happy place, as it were, outside of my work. Wonderful. Wonderful. I love that. And I, some, something which I never knew until you said what you said is that um, in lockdown, I sat down with my son, Rory, and he said, Mum, I want to talk to you about Marvel. All we've got to do is watch, I think it was 21 films or something. So I've done quite a bit of that too. So Fantastic. I totally hear you around the intricacies, the complexities of that entire empire. But thank you. How fascinating to hear about your life's work so far. And I'm sure so, so much more still to do. You've been an absolutely wonderful guest and we really, really appreciate your time because this is so powerful for anyone that listens in. So thank thank you. you so, so much. Thank you, Sasha. Thanks very much indeed. Wow, I love speaking with Funke. And there are a huge number of insights here for any leader who's looking to drive change and make meaningful progress when it comes to DEI. If you'd like to hear how Inclusive Group can help your organisation to drive change, I would love to hear from you. To find out more about our work or arrange a chat, please click on the link on the landing page of this episode and follow through to our website.